Black History Boot Camp. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Vanessa, are you there? I sure am. Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, depending on where you are calling from around the world. I know we have a big audience today, Morgan. So that was Ella's song, a song written for the great Ella Baker, and it was delivered song dreamed by Sweet Honey and the Rock who is a a legendary, legendary asset in our community. So shout out to them. Maybe some of them are listening today. If you are brand new to Black History Bootcamp, know this. There are thousands of women right now who have laced up their sneakers, opened their front doors, walked outside as a demonstration of hope, inspiration, and love for Black people, for ourselves, and it is called the Girl Trek Movement. And Black History Bootcamp is a walking podcast. Today it will be 60 minutes where we will honor and give absolute glory to the ancestors who came before us, specifically those in the Tulsa Race Massacre, which happened exactly 100 years ago this Memorial Day weekend, this very day. So, Vanessa, I just wanted to give that framing for anybody who's new. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you're not outside walking, there's still time. I encourage you. It will be beautiful. We're going to do a walking meditation a little bit later. It is healing, and that is what we need right now more than ever. We sure do, Morgan. And I want to let people know that this call, which is happening on the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, is part of Girl Trek's tradition of honoring the legacy of Black freedom fighters, of the everyday Black men and women whose names we do not know. That's a part of our work every day. And that walking as a tradition, we can start to actually, as a community, consider how we can create healthy traditions or healing traditions that we haven't had in our past or that have been taken away from us so that new generations of our babies cannot be in a place of trauma or in a place of angst. And so that we can really lean on the ancestral tools that have been passed down to us, which is what we have been doing with walking. So Morgan, I'm so glad we are doing this call because 
what would we have done today? How would we have shown up on this 100th anniversary of this event if it weren't to move our bodies and to call their names? I really don't know any other way. So I'm glad that Girl Trek is giving me an outlet um, and a way to show up for something that I want to hold space for. And we are taking a walk today to talk this thing through, to talk to one of the premier voices of our generation, Miss Tamika Mallory, to try and figure a lot of things out. We've been seeing stuff on social media. Maybe you watched the debut of the beautiful film last night that was executive produced by Russell Westbrook. Shout out to Russ. And beautiful, beautiful Stanley Nelson, filmmaker. Maybe you were able to see that. If not, I highly recommend it on the History Channel. Or maybe you just saw a post on Girl Trek's page and you were like, I heard something about a massacre in Tulsa, but I don't know that much about it. Please don't feel any kind of way because we're going to talk about it. We're two friends who are trying to figure this thing out. But before we do, I want to just give some context. We're out in the streets. I'm in Accra, Africa. Vanessa, I think, is in Washington, D.C. Are you in D.C., V.? I sure am. I am walking in Washington, D.C. It is a stunningly beautiful day in your nation's capital. And there's so many people out here. I actually am thinking of this woman who said on our last healing walk that when she was walking in her neighborhood during the walk that we did a couple of weeks ago, every person and black woman, especially who she saw, she assumed that in their headphones, they were also listening to the same thing that she was listening to. And I find myself now looking around the street at everyone saying, I wonder, are they also listening to Black History Boot Camp in those headphones? Right. Well, be sure to share this with your friends and family who really are grappling with the trauma of violence against Black people. This will be a hopeful hour that we spend together, and I'm ready to get into it. I'm ready to get into it as well, especially and because we're going to be talking to, I feel like she's my cousin in my head, I just want to say that, Tamika Mallory um, in this call. And Man, she is the voice of a generation, Morgan, and I know you and I both are inspired by her. So I just want to let people know that the hour is going to be full of uh, amazing conversations and special guest Tamika. Listen, I have been trying to unpack this massacre, but what you need to know is that the Tulsa race massacre was the deadliest, most violent act of racial terror on American soil in all of history. It was the deadliest, most violent act of racial violence ever to take place in a single moment in history in America. And the fact that we don't all know all of the details is the kind of erasure, is the kind of emotional pain, is the kind of disrespect to our ancestors that we will no longer tolerate this generation. Listen, right before this broadcast, I was Vanessa Shea, our friend, actually my ex-husband's friend from New Jersey. Shout out to Shea, who's like the neighborhood black historian. Yes. <laughs> black historian. <laughs> he sent me this, this deep in the crates kind of video of this woman, and her name was Dr. Olivia Hooker, and she was one of the last remaining survivors of the massacre. And she's no longer with us, I don't, I don't think, because this was a, a couple of years ago. And she was part of a group of people who wrote a book called Before They Die or Before We Die. And she was in a small room with a whole bunch of people, mostly black women. It looked kind of like a church basement. And she was sitting in a chair, and she had so much poise, Vanessa. Mm -hmm. And the people were like crying. Grown men were crying as she recapped the story of the massacre. And one woman came up and she had on like her African print, like jacket, like sweeping the floor. And she came over and she paid her respects 
to this beautiful woman and she said, can I ask you a question? She said, how did your family deal with the emotional toll of what happened in Tulsa? And the woman said, she goes, I never really thought about that. It's first what struck me. And then she said, I suppose we went to church more. And she said, but we were never really victimized by this. She said, my mom had a resilient spirit when it was happening. She said, when the guy who was holding a gun came into our house and she was holding her baby and the guy told her to stick him up, my mom said, well, if you hold my baby, I will get the water from the stove so that I can continue to put the fire out in my house. That's what she said to the white gunman who was in her house. This is a story from her family, Vanessa. And so she said, we never were victims. She said, in the moments that they were perpetuating violence, we were strong. And there's something about this woman who was sitting there nearly 100 years herself with such access and love and charm and laughter talking about her family. And I'll get into the facts in a second. But one of the other things she said from her personal point of view, Vanessa, is she said, My father fought the legislature all the way to the local Supreme Court for reparations for our people for eight years. And she was saying from 1921 to like 1929 when the Great Depression happened that he was fighting and was really getting nowhere. And she said, what you have to understand is, yes, there was a violence, but there was the aftermath of the violence. And what people don't understand is that the insurance company would not pay my father for his house, even though he was paid up on his insurance. Because if they paid my for my father's house, they would have to have paid for every single person whose house got burned in that 35 blocks of a black Mecca that was burned to the ground. So the insurance companies refused to pay my father's claim. And she said, and then what people don't understand is that our bank books were burned. So the bank, the national bank then, denied that people had any money in the bank because they had no paperwork to prove it. There's these small details around like family trauma that sometimes... I think are even more illuminating than the big historical facts that this woman's talking about. That description of that woman and that baby, I don't know what happened, but I feel like we all might feel like this on this morning on this walk, but I just, tears came to my eyes because I'm like, this feels a little unfair. I love my work and I love that we have gathered here on this call. And yet imagine the possibilities of our lives if we didn't have to recap and recall this level of trauma on this beautiful day while we were out walking. It was just something about that description of that woman and that baby that makes me feel like this is our work, the collective work that is in our bodies, that we have to recount these stories, that we have to always constantly be in the struggle, always constantly have to be in the fight. This is our real work. And we have to all as Black people show up like this every single day, holding space for these stories, holding space for these events. And that on this holiday, when we could be and probably will be even later running through the grass with our families or doing other things, we never seem to have an opportunity to just be, to just show up. I just felt overwhelmed by that when you were saying it. I'm just like, this work is so important. And yet our healing is even more important, y'all. It is even more important because they have come to kill, steal, and destroy. And it has been so intentional and it has been so strategic. And so as Morgan continues to unpack this story, just know that we're going to move into a walking meditation that if you're feeling like I'm feeling where those tears just all of a sudden came to your eyes, we're going to lead you through a way to move out of this as well. I'm overwhelmed at that woman and the baby and her asking that man to hold the baby. 
We're going to start the walking meditation, everyone. It's going to be eight minutes. So let's center ourselves and center our bodies, and then we'll get back into the story. On the count of three, breathe with me. One, two, three. On the count of three, breathe with me. One, two, three. Bring attention to your feet. Thank them for what they've brought you from. Rejoice in what they're bringing you to. Breathe. Bring attention to your lower legs. Thank them for the waters they've carried you through. From puddles to big waters. Rejoice knowing they have the strength to take you through whatever comes next. Breathe. Bring attention to your knees. Thank them for every time they were bent, every time they hit the ground. Rejoice in their strength, that every bend created the opportunity for every stand. Breathe. Bring attention to your thighs. Thank them for the gift of parting and the gift of closing again. When you choose, only when you choose. Rejoice for the part they play in your pleasure. Breathe. Bring attention to your hips. Thank them for your sway, your special way that connects you across the diaspora, home. Rejoice in the movement that's yours, all yours. Breathe. Bring attention to your root. Just say thank you. Thank you for what is, for what isn't, for surviving, for healing, for creating. Rejoice that it is done. It is over. It is healed. Breathe. Bring attention to your back. Thank it for all that it's held, all it's endured, all it's carried for you, your mama and her mama before her. 
Rejoice in the knowledge that every load it carries shifts the baggage for your daughters and her daughters after her. Breathe. Bring attention to your arms. Thank them for the lifting up and the holding down. Rejoice because you can put the burden down and hold and be held instead. Breathe. Bring attention to your hands. Thank them for holding on. Rejoice in their alchemy. They're making out of nothingness. Breathe. Bring attention to your throat. Thank it for every word spoken. Rejoice, knowing that it has so much more truth to bear. Breathe. Bring attention to your ears. Thank them for bringing us the information we need when we need it. Rejoice in the resonance and the remembrance of sound. Breathe. Bring attention to your eyes. Thank them for seeing and being seen. Rejoice in knowing that every day, every moment is a new opportunity to behold a new miracle and be held as one. Breathe. Bring attention to your crown. Thank it for the wonder on top that is but a fraction of the wonder within. Rejoice knowing that your brilliance is inherent, deeply ingrained and cultivated by ancestors. Breathe. Bring attention to the whole of you. Your ears may not hear and you are miracle. Your eyes may not see and you are a statistical anomaly. This is your body. Say your name. Breathe. This is your body. Your time traveling, centuries surviving, trauma transforming, a never not been here body. Your glorious masterfully constructed, celestially aligned, black like a gift, black like God, black like the cosmos, black like your mama's body. This is your body. Remember it and keep it holy because it is. Remember your name and keep it holy because it is. Remember your breath 
and keep it holy because it is. On the count of three, breathe with me. One, two, three. This has been a meditation for Black women. Written by Monet Marshall. Read by Mama Nia Wilson. Have a beautiful, wonderfully blessed day. In love and light. Ashe, Amin, and Amen. And now that we have centered ourselves back in our bodies, I want us to imagine a vibrant, thriving Black neighborhood called Greenwood. A neighborhood fully supported by the community of Black people who themselves only just one, two generations removed from slavery. And that in Greenwood, in this thriving community, where there were brick and wood frame homes that dotted the landscape, where there were blocks lined with grocery stores and hotels and nightclubs and billiard halls and theaters and doctor's office and churches. And that neighborhood and community is the neighborhood and community where more than, this is of great debate. Some people are going to say it was less than 100. Some people are going to say, don't say 300 because we don't know. I'm going to say that every number they give us is a gross underestimation, I guarantee you, of the number. That hundreds of Black men and women in that community were massacred. And that they were massacred, yes, because of an erroneous story around a Black boy and a woman in an elevator, and of course he didn't do it, and then of course later it was recanted. That's not the story. It's not the Black boy, trust me. It was the burning, bubbling anger of the white men and women in that community who simply could not stand to see those Black men and women thriving. And I guarantee you that they themselves were waiting for an opportunity by which they could enact this level of violence on the community. And that is why today, as we are going to talk about not just the story, but the future of how we rebuild communities, it is so important for us to remember that it was a thriving Black community, Greenwood. And so just coming back into our bodies, I want us to imagine those Black men and women in the theater and the laughter and the babies and the opportunity that was lost there. And that is where this conversation is starting right now, back from that meditation. That was beautiful. So the time was four o'clock in Greenwood and it was bustling. They call it the Black Wall Street for a reason. Booker T. Washington came there and he was like, they are balling out in this city. I mean, they had two theaters, Vanessa. They had like all sorts of stuff going on. The best surgeon in the whole country, Dr. Jackson, was living there, like all sorts of people, dentists. I mean, if you think about like bankers, all sorts of people were living there. And there was one young guy who was 19 years old, 
His name was Dick Rowland, and he was a shoeshine boy on the street. And what happened was, in 1915, Oklahoma became a state, Vanessa. But what you have to understand, the date in history that everybody knows in Black history is 1865, right? The Emancipation Proclamation. We know that the Civil War happened between 1861 to 1865. So a lot of the Civil War veterans were still living and thriving in places like Greenwood, Oklahoma. So you have strong, capable men who are living there. I just want you to understand those veterans. But this is also after the First World War. So those veterans had come back. But the reason why this is important to know is because Oklahoma for the vast majority of those people's lifetime, and even when Greenwood was established, Oklahoma was what was called Indian Territory because all of our Native American brothers and sisters had been kicked off their land throughout the American South and herded to a place called Indian Territory, which is current-day Oklahoma. So lots of African Americans after the Civil War, after Reconstruction, moved to places like Kansas and Oklahoma. My ancestors did, actually, moved to both Kansas and Oklahoma right outside of Tulsa. In fact, I have family there now. These were called homesteaders, right? And they were the bravest of us. You know, they were the most entrepreneurial of us. And they had big dreams of creating community and neighborhoods for Black people. So they thrive. There was a big oil boom happening there. They went and worked for domestics for the white oil tycoons, but then they came back, brought their dollars back to Greenwood and circulated those dollars. Some say low estimates of five times. Some people say up to 60 times within their community. They bought from this black business, this black business, this black business before it ever left their community. That economic model works and they thrived. They thrived in Greenwood. And this is at the turn of the century. They were thriving. Before Oklahoma was called Oklahoma and Indian Territory, they were thriving. And the 1900 census, when I found my great-grandmother Caroline right outside of Tulsa, it said she lived in Indian Territory. That's important. Because in Indian Territory, there was not the federal segregation laws that we knew in all the other places, right? So here we come in 1915, and Oklahoma is going to be incorporated as a state. Well, coming with that federal designation comes Jim Crow. And also what comes is after the war, all of these men come back from the war, and in every single industrial city in this country, the summer of 1919, there were violent riots, violent riots, because those men didn't have jobs, and they saw black men as being the competition to their jobs. And so they killed them for their jobs all across Chicago, St. Louis. We talked about this in the Josephine Baker episode, that she was born into a riot, 1919. It was the red summer of hate. Also during this time was birth of a nation. We know that after Reconstruction, Black people thrived. Our first congressmen were put into office, right? We were thriving all over the country after you let us out of the bondage of slavery. We was like, bet, we got this. So what happened? The Ku Klux Klan was born. Birth of a Nation made that ideology popular. So here we are in 1921 on a holiday weekend, Memorial Day. Greenwood is thriving. Two years earlier, cities had been set afire because people thought that Black people were prospering too much. And Greenwood was the Black Wall Street. I want you to have that context. Because what happened that day was not a bunch of drunk white boys. What happened that day was a coordinated attack from every level of government to destroy and to dismantle Black wealth and Black excellence because of white supremacy. And it started at 4 o'clock. A man, 19 years old, 
had to go to the bathroom, Vanessa. He had to go to the bathroom. Yeah. His name was Dick Rowland. He went to the Drexel Hotel because it was the only colored bathroom close to his job. He knew everybody because it hadn't been segregated. So people, white and black, had come and he had shined shoes. He went in, he saw a woman who most people think he probably knew or recognized, who was a 17-year-old girl who worked the elevator. She just ran the elevator up to the third floor and back, right? Just ran the elevator up to the seventh floor and back, right? Her name was Sarah, and Dick Rowland gets on. He has to go to the bathroom. He goes up to the third floor. The elevator wasn't functioning properly. Most people think it just kind of opened in the middle of two floors and was scary. And somebody heard Sarah scream. Well, this 19-year-old man is no fool. He knows what kind of racial violence is happening in Oklahoma. He knows that the mayor himself of Tulsa is in the Ku Klux Klan. He understands what's happening. So he's like, let me out of this elevator. He gets out of the elevator and he runs. They find him the next day, Vanessa. They take him to the courthouse. Even the lawyers who were some white men were like, no, 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 we know this man. No, this is a good man. This can't be possible. Sarah herself refused to press charges. But this was just enough of a light to blow up the bomb of racial hatred that was already in Oklahoma at the time. A mob of white men came to the courthouse demanding that this man be turned over to them so that they could lynch him. Not on our watch. Seventy so black men, many who had come back from the war, Mm. came back, rallied tough. They were armed too. And they said, you're not going to take this young boy. This part of the story is so important, Morgan. Thank you. They were outnumbered, but they fought. They fought valiantly. They say, you're not going to take this man. You are not going to take this young man. What happened from there is mixed. There, were, there was a gun fired, and the fight ensued, where 75 black men are trying to protect Dick Rowland, this 19-year-old boy who was just trying to use the bathroom, and a mob of white men in trucks with machine guns were fighting them. Those 75 men, most of them fought to their death, and that was the beginning of the massacre. Those truckloads of men went into Greenwood in a concerted attack with the police. The police, as Klansmen came in from other towns, deputized them, gave them badges, gave them uniforms. They went in. There were planes ahead dropping fuel, dropping dynamite. There was a machine gun cannon on a hilltop that was shooting into a church. Men were busting into houses, lighting curtains on fire, stealing and looting from the wealthy, burned 35 blocks of homes and businesses down killed countless numbers of people, dumped bodies in rivers, dug mass and shallow graves, and they hid it all, Vanessa, from the news media because, I told you, the mayor was in the Klan. The National Guard was not sent in until tomorrow. They were not sent in until 24 hours of massacre. The police held them off until our Black Wall Street was burned to the ground. Our heroes, the top surgeon in the nation, was murdered in cold blood in the streets of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And nobody talked about it. For 80 years, 
Nobody talked about it until those young daughters and those young sons of those valiant men and women who fought gathered up the legislative will, gathered up the courage to start to fight for the rights and justice reparationally for their families. And that is one of the women that you saw speaking in front of Congress just days ago. We will not let this massacre go unnoted today. It is 100 years ago that this happened on American soil to the most prosperous story of Black wealth, of community organizing, of Black education, of family values that we had known to date. It was our model, and they burned it and burned us alive to the ground. Then what happened after that mm-hmm. is that they called it a riot in the newspapers, and they said that the Black men and women you know, the mighty, prosperous, diamond-wearing, fur-coat-wearing, black, you know, hoity-toity, uppity, black people of Greenwood started a riot against the good people of Tulsa. The National Guard came in and arrested 6,000 black people, Vanessa, and interned them for weeks in a camp, while the rest of the residents of this thriving city lived in tents with no paperwork, with no insurance, with no money, with half of their families dead in the streets, with no federal aid, while 6,000 of us were criminalized when we were the victims. So that is the story of the Tulsa massacre. And I want you to know that and I want you to remember it today. As we collectively organize over 1 million Black women who will listen to this, I want you to understand why it's important that our communities rise. I want you to know why it's important that you take to the streets of your neighborhoods every day and you keep an eye out on what's going on and you organize your friends and family and you take up space in neighborhoods and parks. I want you to know why policy matters. I want you to know why money and economics matters. And I want you to know that Girl Trek will not allow this sort of thing to happen on our watch without telling the story and using that as inspiration and fire to rebuild our people's communities and to rebuild this nation. And I'm going to tell you, Morgan, why it's important that you just told this story. And it's important why across all of our news feeds and on the news, there's been a lot of conversation and documentaries and all sorts of stuff in the last couple of weeks around this Tulsa race massacre. And it's not even enough. And I'm going to tell you why tomorrow, Morgan, Tuesday in 2021, the Oklahoma Archaeological Society is going to begin efforts tomorrow to start exhuming bodies that they believe are in a mass grave from this massacre. And this has been years in the making, and they have only been able to even arrive at this point because of oral history. Because the newspapers willfully refused to report on it because the government actually didn't refuse to document it. The reason that we have the information that we have 
is because of the oral history of those Black people who considered themselves, by the way, refugees. They were like, we were left refugees with nothing. And yet the oral history passed down from one person to another around people who said, my great uncle was a part of the diggers and they were digging bodies or, or somebody's family saw what happened. Like that is actually how we were able even to arrive that tomorrow they will start to dig because people's oral history pointed them in the direction because we know our communities and we know our stories. And that's why even as we tell this story on Black History Bootcamp and all the people who will come back and download it, it's like, this is how in generations to come, they will know that we fought back, that we are survivors, that our story didn't start with slavery, that we don't just have generational wealth. The median income or wealth for Black women is what, $100, Morgan? It's some sort of crazy number. And that's not intentional because Black women are the hardest working women on the planet. But our entire wealth in our communities has been strategically stripped from us from stuff like this. And if we don't tell the stories, then the stories that our kids know is a story of poor credit and debt and all sorts of things that are simply not true. And so I'm so grateful that we're able to tell this story right now in this way and and become a part of the oral history, essentially, of the people of Tulsa who then kept this memory alive. I agreed, Vanessa. Agreed. And I'm also reminded of the 2016 death of Terrence Crutcher there, right in Tulsa, when that man was shot down. And again, nobody was prosecuted. Just like no, not a single person was prosecuted in the massacre of 300 black men and women in broad daylight and the burning down and looting of 35 blocks. Not a single person was prosecuted from the white community. And so what we're talking about today and bringing on our sister, Tamika Mallory, to talk about are the systems in place to destroy us, the systems in place to exploit us or to make us expendable when the economics no longer work. Vanessa, I was thinking about one of the things that we're going to do this summer. Just I want to start to talk about how we can be resilient in this moment, like the woman I described at the beginning of this call, where it's like, listen, y'all think y'all didn't destroy us. You tried to bury us, but you didn't know we were seeds. I'm telling you, you cannot destroy people this way and not expect them to get stronger, brighter, savvier, more loving, more resilient. You cannot do this to us in broad daylight. You can't do it. And so our people survived. Our people survived, and now we are thriving in a way that this world and our country needs us to lead. I thank God that I can do that. And so what I'm asking people out there to do is to walk with us every day, to one, get your mind right, get your body right, get your spirit right, and start walking every day as the single most powerful thing you can do for your health. The second thing I'm going to ask us to do is to, this week, at least spend $10. How about, let's start small, $10 with a Black-owned business. Is that a deal? Just $10 with a Black-owned business so that we can start to demonstrate the kind of economic power that our foremothers and our forefathers had in Greenwood. We can start to demonstrate the economic power and raise the entire economy of America. So one of the things that I was thinking about, Vanessa, is do you remember the African burial ground project in New York City when they, under Tammany Hall, they found those bones of our ancestors who have been buried in mass graves there? I sure do. I didn't know you were going to mention that, but I just want to call his name because in the research that I've been doing about this, On the ground in Tulsa is a man named Chief Ungwale Amusa. 
and he's the president of the Tulsa African Ancestral Society. And Morgan, when I tell you that man has been going so hard in the paint that he himself was prosecuted for a crime way back in 1996 when the Oklahoma allowed the KKK to actually march through the streets and then they actually beat a black pregnant woman and then this chief actually intervened and then they actually beat him and then charged him with a crime. But that he is actually leading a charge right now because he is saying that tomorrow as they start to do the exhuming of those bodies, that it is such a disrespect and consideration that they're considering burying the bodies in the exact same cemetery as the perpetrators. And he is like, that is not going to happen. And I was just like, there are so many organizers on the ground and people doing work in communities. So when you said that, it made me think of that story because I do remember it. And it made me think of that man. Yes. No, I was so proud of us in New York City. I'm talking like Felicia Rashad was there. There was like African dancers there. There was all kind of holy men from different faith laying rights to that African burial ground. There was a cacophony of culture, Vanessa, that came to pay respect. And I I want us to make sure that we can honor the, the men and women of Greenwood in the same way. And so we will put on our Instagram page a place for you to donate so that we can support the local efforts there. We ask you to do it. And we will call and see how much is donated today. And whatever is donated today, Girl Trek will match. Girl Trek will match. So please, please, please donate today on this anniversary and we will match your donation. We'll put it on our Instagram page. I love that call to action, Morgan. I love it because in the last couple of minutes as you have been talking, I was like, this is just literally, I'm having this moment right now. I'm sure there's many people on the call like me who if you're in your healing journey, have been doing a lot of work around, say, trauma and how it's passed down and how we can heal from it. And, it, and that's a lot of the conversation that is happening, I think, in the Black community. And I was like, but on the flip side, we need to be having just as much conversation around how that survival gene was passed down, how that resilience is actually embedded in us, how that knowing of how to build, make something out of nothing, turn a dollar into, you know, 15 cents into a dollar, that is actually also passed down in this way that if we remember that in our bones, right, if we connected to that knowing in our spirit and our body in the same way we connect to the triggers, then it would do us so much good. And that is why if we were able to remember that, then we would be able to then, I think, really rally to support the people who are in our communities today building because we would become a part of a big system of building when we all individually understand our individual power and and when we all understand where we individually came from, even from whom we are, right? And then we can build together. So I want to put my dollars in all those places because I am remembering in my bones and my body that I'm a builder and I come from a legacy of builders. Oh, shame. Ashe is a perfect amount of this conversation to turn over to our interview because we do have on this walk right now with us, Miss Tamika Mallory. Are you there? I am here. Good morning. So happy that we were able to get together this morning. Amen. You are on the ground doing so much impressive work, inspiring so many of us, giving so many of us who don't have words, words, giving so many of us who are looking for leadership, leadership. And we are just grateful that, especially in this part of the conversation where we've just broken down for everyone who we've been in community on this walk with the story of Tulsa and that today is the 100th anniversary. And Morgan was just talking about how we can start to invest back into our communities that now is the time for us to talk to you because you have a vision. Your book lays out a vision. Everything you do lays out a vision for how we can build together. And so 
I just want to jump into that conversation, but Morgan, just want to stop and pause so you can say hi, and then we can talk to Tamika. Hey, Tamika. Hey there. How you doing? <laughs> it's a pleasure to meet you. It's nice to meet you as well, Morgan. I was talking to our board chair the other day because when George Floyd, um, when the decision came down, you remember what it was like. Everybody remembers that day, that moment. I'm in Accra, Africa, and I was watching CNN live, coverage live, and I was overwhelmed by the armchairness of it. <laughs> just like how, like, I was just overwhelmed by it, by CNN. No disrespect, but I was. And I was also watching you live on Instagram. And I was so grateful. You were outside of the courtroom and you were talking to the families and you were crying and you were asking us to get some sleep tonight and you were telling us that it's going to be okay. And before you knew the verdict, you were speaking prosperity and praise and love over our community in this way that I was like, where is she finding this kind of resilience in this scary, scary moment? And I was hanging on to your every word. So I just personally just wanted to thank you for that moment right there. And then you just collapsed when you heard it. I just wanted to thank you for that moment. I appreciate that. It's funny you say that because the words that I was saying and the energy that I was trying to give off was coming directly from Black women in George Floyd's family. Like literally it was his own sister's they're actually his cousins, but you know how we grow up in the same house and so they they are like sisters. First of all, we were together for about five days. And so over the time, each one of us had moments of serious anxiety, you know, where it would just be our one person's time to break down, to get upset, to cry, to feel nervous. And each person would be the one to say, hey, you know, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. So on that day, we had assured one another so much even though we knew that still it could go wrong, but we just would not allow negativity. That's how we woke up in the morning. Like there would be no negativity. And Black America particularly, but, you know, of course, many people outside of our communities were just dealing with way too much stress in that moment. And it wouldn't have helped for me to just, you know, not provide the same care that I had been receiving and that we had all been providing to one another. So It was just an exchange of Black women's energy, you know, and I think that's just the dopeness of who we are. Doesn't matter what we're going through, we still always find a way to edify one another and to be the backbone of support, you know, even in the most difficult situations. So I guess that's what I would say about that. But trust and believe, I almost, you know, I was definitely feeling like fainting. For me, I think one of the things when we talk about justice, and that's why we say we have not received justice, the idea that people had to be that pent up with stress over something that we know was an open, shut situation, it tells me that we're not anywhere close to justice because we should have known. For me, justice would mean that there's no doubt in our minds that, you know, someone who does what happened to George Floyd would would just be immediately found guilty for it. You know, so I guess that's what I would say on that. It's a seesaw thing. It's like you you feel like, okay, this is great that we got accountability, but you can't really call it justice because justice looks like something totally different. It does. And 
emotionally, I felt some kind of resolve by watching you experience it. And I trusted you. There was something even about the way you had your hair that day that you didn't have on a whole bunch of you know, makeup, like you showed up as yourself in this way that almost reminds me of the Georgia Gilmores or the Fannie Lou Hamers of the civil rights movement who nobody could get the people to do anything until real women came and put their voice on it. So I just, I'm, I'm deeply grateful for who you are and how you show up. And I saw the family coming by and you were encouraging the family and you was like, we got this. And they was like, we got this. And you guys were hugging. And I was like, where are the cameras for this? Because that's actually the kind of healing that we need to see mm-hmm. as black people. We need to see real people experiencing and loving each other. So I just wanted to say thank you, Vanessa. I know there's an agenda and we have something really serious to talk about today. <laughs> Well, first of all, you have a new book, State of Emergency, that is out, and you got Cardi B and Angela Davis to write forwards. And when I tell you it is the most genius combination of talk about tribe and community showing up for you, and that, in fact, it's going to be the future of success for our Black community when we figure out how we bring everybody with different ideas to the table where everybody feels included, where somebody like Cardi B can say, I'm not a traditional activist, but I still activate, right, because she's inspired by you. And even where Angela Davis was able to say that, in fact, this is the power of the collective movement when we can all when we can bring different participants. But mainly, I was just thinking, you have a tough tribe, Tamika. And how important is it for you, like the women in your life and the roles that they play in terms of mentoring you, in terms of giving you like who is your tribe and how important is that for you? Because that is what Girl Trek is. We are a collective of a million black women building a movement, a tribe of women who show up. I was like, yes, doing exactly like how Tamika is doing it. Thank you for that as well. My tribe is actually the only thing that I probably have that is literally saving my life. Thank God my mother is here. She had a really, really bad stroke in March of 2020 Mm. and she almost died, but she survived. And I'm so grateful to God for holding her because she certainly is the leader of the tribe. But there are many. And I think when I'm talking to young folks about finding the right people to have in your circle that can help you navigate through the highs and the lows of life, the one thing I always try to share is that it's important to be multi-generational because oftentimes, you know, we, we spend a lot of time around people who we believe, you know, are in our same age group or, you know, folks that we kind of feel they're more of the culture, if you will. But for me, I have a diverse group of women around me. And to be honest, to be clear, there are also men that I'm very close to that help to keep me sort of on the street and narrow because, you know, sometimes as a woman, I get really, really invested in you know, our needs as women, because I know what we've been through. I know how much harm has been done to women and particularly Black women by everybody, you know, including our men. And so sometimes I'm really deep into trying to organize women and trying to address the issues that women are facing. And I have to always check in with my brothers so that they can help me to, to get that macro view where I'm always able to include them at the appropriate times in the conversation. So I would say that, but I make sure that the women that are in my circle, the women that I work with are of all ages. So therefore, one of the women that I speak to probably every day at six and seven o'clock in the morning, she's almost 80 years old. 
And I talk to her every single day about what's happening in my day, the decisions that I think I'm going to make for the day. You know, so I have her. Then I have other women who are older than me that I talk to about politics because, you know, my opinions can be considered radical, which I don't think they're radical at all. But and that's fine. If people want to call it radical, then I'm radical. I don't care. But I talk to them about politics just to try to get an understanding of what is realistic, what's not. And also to be able to compare history and figure out where are we sort of on the scale of justice? How far are we? And what was happening during this time with Dr. King and others who were fighting for political changes? And then, of course, there's, you know, my sister girls who are more, you know, closer to my age. They are the ones that I I probably talk to about a lot of personal stuff. But the last part is that I have so many young people. I have young girls and they're not girls, they're women, but they still are my girls across the country that are 25. Even my niece is 15. I check in with them and I want to know from a cultural standpoint, where is it shifting? And I can't provide that because I don't have uh, my finger on the pulse in the way that they do. And so I think for any young woman or woman in general that's listening, that's trying to figure out, like, how do I take myself to the next level? You got to look at your surroundings and make sure that you have a multi-generational approach to mentorship, to support, and that you also are a benefit to those people who you want to be a mentor in your life. The worst thing in the world is to have people constantly asking you to give, but they don't have anything to pour back into you. So when folks come to me and say they want a mentor, I'm always like, okay, you know, let me look at this and see what can we do for one another versus just that you want me to provide, you know, to pour into you and you've got something to offer too. And you need to know what that is when you are going out into the world, looking for partnership, support, whatever it is from other people. I appreciated that because I need some elders in my life. (laughs) And I realize that now in this way that I think I've been yearning for, but haven't been able to articulate it. And I lost my grandmother when she was like 65 and my family hasn't really had a matriarch. And it's just a really good reminder that we need to be intergenerational. So I just wanted to thank you for that. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So we're here, you know, Memorial Day weekend, a hundred years ago, we know what happened in Tulsa. And one of the big conversations now is about reparations. We got to honor, we got to rebuild Black Wall Street. We got. So I want to know what you think about reparations so I can be in the blueprint with you so, I, so we can be building together. Folks should definitely get state of emergency because I talk about it in the book. And, and I'll say that I think we need everything they owe us. I don't think that it means that we can't survive without it. I don't think that it means that our communities are incapable of building and doing every single thing that we know we're capable of. I mean, we we have so many resources, which is part of the reason why people want to keep us down, right? That's part of the main mm-hmm. reason why we see this real intentional effort to stop us from succeeding because they know that our resources and our ingenuity is so incredible that if we ever like get out of, first of all, fighting each other, and second of all, just this perpetual state of depressed and depression and abuse and everything that we experience, if we can ever free our minds from that to pull our resources together, they can't stop us. And they know Mm -hmm. that we built the country 
We have basically helped to create almost everything that the world enjoys. I mean, we are so amazing. So let's just leave that there. So I know that the need for, or whatever our communities need, we have it. And we can come together, as you said, using the support of people who are just regular folks, everyday people, and then people who have who have found themselves to be very successful. We can take all of that and put it together. And as a result of the creativeness and amazingness of our communities, I think that we are our own reparations in many ways. But it does not leave other people, especially the American government, it will leave them unaccountable if we don't fight to say that we should receive what we are owed. As a nation, you know, we should provide to Black people, first of all, what we were promised. Second of all, other communities have received reparations from this country. And so Black people are no different. We shouldn't be any different. I believe that all folks of African descent deserve at least reparations for the trauma that has been caused. And I know there are different people who, you know, there are different movements out there around reparations. You've got folks who feel like it should just be African descendants of slaves. You've got people that feel like it should be all Africans from the diaspora who live in America. You know, you've got people on different sides of it. And and for me, I haven't taken a specific position on either way, except that I do, because of my upbringing, believe in the diaspora. I do believe in Black folks that come from all over the world. I'm still not at a place where I'm prepared to say that I would like to leave them behind. That's been my position on it. But yet I do appreciate the work that is being done, the research and the advocacy from all different folks who support the reparations movement or who are leading the reparations movement. And so I would say that nothing can be left on the table. We need it all and we need reparations in different forms. It's not just writing us a check, but it's also equity, you know, making sure that we are no longer in a situation where where unfairness is the order of the day. And so that's my non-political assessment, if you will, or feelings about it. And it gets a little bit deeper in my book. And so hopefully folks will pick it up and check it out. No, Tamika, I can't wait to read it. And if there are people out there, trekkers out there who want to read it with me, I will start immediately. I have to get the audio. I hope you on the audio. I'm I'm 90% of the audio. 90%. Okay. And it's on audible.com for all of us who like to walk and listen. You can get the hard copy or you can get the audible version. Like Morgan is saying. Yes, yes, yes. Get both. Get the hard copy for your children and and our legacy. And also, I'm going to be listening to it as I walk this week. I'm at at Morgan Trex. If you need somebody to talk to about it, I will need somebody to talk to. Reach out to me on Instagram. Tamika, I love that answer. First of all, let's start with Tulsa. Every family that lost something in that state-sponsored massacre, give it back to them. That's like easy. That's easy. Yeah, that's easy. So let's write some policy together. Or so, I don't even know how to begin. I got to go read your book before I get all up in that. But I'm just like, whatever you need from us, Tamika, in order to make that happen, us as a movement, let us know and we'll stand behind that because that's how stuff starts. So I think that's the minimum. And then we also um, need to think about all of us and how we can get the kind of just resources that we need. On the reparations front, folks should watch 
Sheila Jackson Lee, Congresswoman from Texas, you know, really yeah. watch her because she's the person who's leading the H.R. 40 bill. It's made it out of committee, which is a great thing. And so there's progress, but folks should really pay attention to her, watch her. Thank you for that recommendation. Yeah, we just have a few minutes left, Tamika, and I'm walking right now through my neighborhood in D.C. And somebody literally just turned on the loudest go-go because it's like it's Memorial Day is about to go off in D.C. And I was like, man, I am inspired by so many things in my own neighborhood, in my community. In particular, I'm inspired by the work that Morgan and I do and the women who every single day actually are breaking those perpetual cycles that you were just mentioning. And we are breaking them by putting one foot in front of the other, by getting in community, by having honest and vulnerable conversations. And I want to ask you as we get ready to wrap up, what's inspiring you? What or who is inspiring you right now? Like giving you the strength to kind of keep going. Man, these kids, man, these young folks are just, they're like, wow, they're so smart. They're so creative. They're so courageous. The younger generation of activists and organizers, they are so courageous. I feel like when I have these moments of when I'm not as courageous, you know, when I'm like, because, you know, as you get older, you start to say, oh, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't, you know, because then you got good sense. You got wisdom at that point. And so. So you know better, like, oh, you can get hurt if you go over there. But when you're younger, you take the chance and you go against the tide. And that's what I feel like so many of these young people are doing. They are really taking chances. They're entrepreneurs. They're not afraid to go out and try new things. Like I can see in young folks that my work is not in vain, even if it's not acknowledged at the level that it should be by some other folks, especially people in our community. I don't feel unacknowledged, you know, even though sometimes there are people who have very, very negative things to say and they don't really always know at all what they're talking about, but they can be extremely negative. They can be very, very judgmental. And generally it's folks that don't take the type of chances that I take, you know, and so that can be stressful at times. Because, you know, you want your people, especially your own people, to see you. But when I work with these young folks, I realize that they're getting the message. And the ways in which they speak to me, you know, when they come to me and they say, we're on the right track because we're learning from you. That gives me a lot of inspiration. It lets me know that I have to just keep pushing. I have to keep going. I think that for me has been the most encouraging is just knowing that there are people watching who will make decisions based upon me standing up and standing strong and firm in my beliefs and knowing that what it is that I am advocating and wanting from them, I have to also be it. And so I guess that for me is what encourages me every day. And I'll tell you, in this point in my life, as much as I feel the stress of our communities I'm also about to turn 41 years old and I feel the best that I have ever felt, you know, after some major breakdowns and some things that I've gone through that have really hurt me a lot. This is a time in my life when I can say that I'm in the best place that I have been in. Thank you, God, for that. We thank God for that. Yeah, we we said the exact same thing at the exact same time. We thank God for that. 
Listen, we're, we are of the same generation. And I was going to actually ask this as my final question, and you just brought it up. You were so open and vulnerable on the Red Table Talks. And I was just like, girl, yes. And Vanessa and I have made a practice of public vulnerability that is sometimes you, you get off and you'd be like, did I just say all my business? But I was proud of you. <laughs> I was proud of you. And you've given us so much to think about on this call, like follow the reparations bill, support black businesses, get intergenerational mentors and mentor young people and ask them to give because young people are bright and smart. And this last thing that you're talking about, all of us have experienced even the secondary trauma of hearing the story of Tulsa over and over again today, right? And we all have our own stuff that we can name generational trauma on our hands so easily. You've spoken so openly about how being an activist, being close to trauma has impacted you. And I want to know, is there another one or two prescriptions you can give to the women on this phone right now live who are walking, who are trying to figure out how to just get up in the morning sometimes when it feels like there's so much against us. What is the prescription that you have in your life? What do people who are close to trauma need? Oh, I love this one. And it's a short answer. Get rid of the days in your mind. Man, let me tell you. Yes, that is actually the answer. Yes, yes. The best thing I ever did for myself was start saying, who is they? I had an older woman Asked me that one time. I was in the midst of raging hell within the Women's March. And she came and met with me. She's one of my mentors. She's like, I keep hearing you say they said and they are going to do and they this. And she said, who is they? Who are the days that you speak of? And I said, I know, but I didn't really know. And I, it took me some work to go and identify all the they's. And once I did, once I was able to assess who they were, then I was able to start fighting back and or dismissing people because I realized that they were not that important. They just weren't. And I would say every one of us as a woman has to do that because we get into our minds what they going to say, you know, how they feel, how they see us. We have to just release ourselves of the they mentality and know that the only person that really matters is you. And I'll say this and be done with it. There's a meme on the internet that I love. I was supposed to post it the other day and I forgot. So I'm glad that you are bringing this up. And it's the meme that says, be sure that you are not the weapon forming against you that's causing you not to prosper. Because that's what they do to you. They make you Stop your own self and stunt your own growth. So get rid of they, because they don't matter. Only thing that matters is what the track that God has you on and your purpose and go for that. And when they pops up in your mind, assess who they are. If they is your mother and your father, then perhaps it requires a conversation. But even sometimes mama and daddy can't see your vision. So they cannot be what holds you back from, from doing what you need to do in your life? Whew. There go to the word. There go to the word. I knew, I knew it. 
<laughs> I knew it. Thank you so much, Tamika. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. I appreciate this walk. I needed it today. Just all respect and all glory to every activist who came before us and just giving special love, sending special love to the people of Tulsa, to the people of Greenwood, to the families who suffered trauma, and sending all the love. And please send donations to the Greenwood community. Vanessa, did you have any final thoughts? No, just that I needed this as well. And that actually, that is my final thought. This is always the outcome of a walk. It is always the outcome of a walk. You get something you need, even if it's just you walking with you and your God, you walking with you and your music, you talking to a girl, you'd, you will always get something. So if you get stuck throughout this week, if you don't know where to start, if you, if you get into a place where you're just feeling overwhelmed or you're looking for a place to start, Start with a walk, and I promise at the end, you will feel a bit lighter, have a bit more clarity, and have some inspiration. And then, Tamika, I want to say that I'm not a young person, but I am following you as well, and I am inspired. And thank you so much, because you're just giving so much to so many people. And I'm, as a peer in the 40-something-year-old category of life, I just appreciate you for how you show up as a Black woman. Thank you thank so much. Thank you. I appreciate you as well. And I, I love this conversation. Hopefully you, you all will have me back again. We will. We will. Thank you, everyone. Be well. We're going to end with a prayer by Valerie Cord. It's a Sikh prayer by a beautiful woman who was talking about the legacy of her ancestors and the harm that had been given to them by America. And we thought it was so appropriate on this 100-year anniversary of the race massacre. So... Be well, everyone, and we love you. Yes, Rabbi. The future is dark. On this New Year's Eve, this watch night, I close my eyes and I see the darkness of my grandfather's cell. And I can feel the spirit of ever-rising optimism in the Sikh tradition, Chardikala, within him. And so the mother in me asks, what if? What if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if our America... What if our America is not dead, but a country that is waiting to be born? What if the story of America is one long labor? What if all of our grandfathers and grandmothers are standing behind us now, those who survived occupation and genocide, slavery and Jim Crow, detentions and political assault? What if they're whispering in our ear today, tonight, you are brave? What if this is our nation's great transition? What does the midwife tell us to do? Breathe. And then, because if we don't push, we will die. If we don't push, our nation will die. Tonight, we will breathe. Tomorrow, we will labor in love, through love. And your revolutionary love is the magic we will show our children. Bye, Guruji Ka Khalsa. Bye, Guruji Ki Fateh.